Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 22. Very easy to find. Go to the end of the book. It's the last chapter. We've been working our way through the book of Revelation since last July. So it'll be a delight to get to finish the last chapter together this morning. And as we contemplate doing such, we'll ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, we come before your awesome throne by faith. We ask that the Holy Spirit present among us would open the eyes of our hearts to see the wonderful things you have in store for us here in your word. In Christ's name, amen. So we've spent several weeks here in these last two chapters, chapter 21 and 22, uh, reflecting and talking about heaven, which the Bible and theologians call the eternal state, and such fascinating language and images that really kind of defy our imaginations. And even though the Holy Spirit is revealing these future truths to us about what waits in store for those who put their faith in Christ, uh, still it's true that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 9. But the funny thing is, is that it says in that very verse, but the Holy Spirit is revealing them to us in, in terms that we can understand. And so we get some of it, the generalities, but the details are hard to grasp because those kinds of things haven't been seen. We haven't heard them and they haven't entered into our minds. And so Paul the Apostle says it's kind of like looking through a fogged up window at the moment, 1 Corinthians 13 there. And John, our dear apostle, says, Dear friends, now we're the children of God, and what we will be hasn't yet been made known completely, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And so we've got a lot of good information about what is waiting in store for us, Uh, We'll have an incorruptible body, immortal. It will live forever. It'll be a body like we saw the Lord rise from the grave. His body, flesh and bone, without blood and without digestion, that kind of thing, spirit generated, appearing and disappearing as Christ himself did with his resurrected body, and eating and enjoying it. Sounds wonderful. Uh, the, The same person Jesus was When he died, he was raised as that same being. And so too, we who die and then are raised remain who we were in this life, who we are perfected. So what will we be doing in heaven? Well, we've been talking about it in vague terms like worshiping God. What does that look like there? And and having him right there among us and and serving him and reigning forever. Well, that's pretty clear. But but what does it look like every day? What does serving him look like? And and those are the things that we wish we knew. But, you know, why, why isn't it there? Well, the details are lacking, I believe, because we're incapable of understanding them. He's already told us, you've never seen it, you never heard it, nor has it even entered into your mind. 
So I, I, I work with me, people. I'm using, <laughs> I, I'm using language that you can understand, though it's stretched to its limitations. Uh, but we get the gist. We get the gist. You know, I started thinking it reminded me of something in my own family. When we left for Japan, Jordan, our daughter, was three, and Zach, our son, was a baby. I tried to describe to Jordan what life would be like in Japan. And so we started teaching her a new language. I said, honey, you know, everybody's going to be speaking, and you're not going to be understanding. So let's practice our numbers. Ichini, sanshi, go, roku, sich, hachiku, ju. Let's practice good morning. Ohayo gozaimasu. Let's practice thank you. Domo arigato gozaimashita. Only for kids, you just say, domo. <laughs> it's a lot easier than what I just said. And all of that, the colors. And honey, there are going to be new songs. And when you go to school, just new ways of doing things and new ways of dressing and new foods, a lot of fish. And to this day, Jordan is not a real fan of fish. <laughs> But the two boys who really started their lives there, they love sushi as they should, as all Christians do. <laughs> Now, oh, I said, Mommy and Daddy will be thrown too. I mean, their steering wheels on the other side, and we'll be、uh, bowing instead of shaking and taking our shoes off, and the money's different, and eating with chopsticks. But when I saw her in her yukata, In her Japanese classroom, with the music and the sounds and the interacting and the look on her face, I knew that nothing I could have said could prepare her for the kind of life that she found herself in there in Japan. It's the kind of life that needs to be experienced and、uh, kind of defies being described. Now, moreover, And I think a better way to understand this is four years later, when the kids were、uh, three, five, and seven, and we were ready to come home. I think I have a picture of that. We really had three Japanese children. They didn't really know. About our American culture, except for all of our stories. And there was all this talk about. The promised land of America. When we go home, first of all, everybody speaks the same language, almost, except in California. But, uh, mostly everybody does. And, and、uh, you won't be the odd man out. You'll fit in everywhere. That was such a huge concept to them. You, you're going to fit in. Nobody's even going to really notice you. And everything coming out of their mouths, you'll be able to understand. And wide open spaces and big houses with front yards and backyards and swimming pools and, and, and barbecues and, and going to the beach. These are all concepts very rare. And not popular in Japan at all. So I started talking about the land flowing with、uh, hamburgers, pizza, and cheeseburgers and ice cream. I said, listen, every 50 feet, you're going to find a hamburger, pizza, or ice cream in America. And they're really, I just couldn't describe it any better. Now, their joyous expectations were not disappointed at all. My kids, once in a while, you could get some box cereal. 
in Japan. It's not a big thing there, obviously. And, uh, but they loved it. And we said, oh, when you go home, we'll, we'll have it every day if you want it. They were like, wow. Well, we went to Safeway for the very first time. And we went down the cereal aisle. Well, they exploded up and down, jumping. Mommy, Daddy, look at the cereal, look at the cereal. And they're screaming and yelling, and people are passing by. Uh, Do you guys get out much? (laughs) Do you keep your kids in a closet? Uh, And we're like, we're not from here. And uh, they're, they're, they're really wild. And the marvels just never ceased. One day, Zachary saw a guy mowing his lawn, and he said, Dad, what is that? And I said, what is what? He said, he's pushing something. What is that? And I said, it's a lawnmower. Say lawnmower, Zachary. <laughs> I said, like, lawnmower. And he goes, well, why is he cutting down his tombow? Rice patty. <laughs> and I say, Zach, that's called a lawn. Say lawn. <laughs> Lawn, all right. So just marvel. I mean, so much so. This kid, uh, he wanted a lawnmower so bad. He saved up fifth grade, sixth grade. He bought a, a lawnmower and he started a lawn mowing company and he started employing college students. This is just his the way Zach is. Well, all right. Moving on. Thank you for my three adorable children. There, um, Paul the apostle said, "You know, I got a glimpse of heaven." He said, "Whether I was there in the body." Or whether it was a vision, I don't know. God knows. Perhaps it happened in Acts 14 when he was left for dead after they tried to kill him, piling stones on top of him. So he said, I was caught up into heaven and I heard things that were a retos in the Greek. A for no, retos words. I heard things that were no words. I, I have no words to tell you what I saw and heard there. Just a, a, a wonderful way of expressing that it's inexpressible what waits for us on the other side. So with that said, Revelation 21, and now we're going to finish up in 22. That's kind of the framework. We, we get it. Well, there are some hard, good facts about what's waiting for us, but the details are just a little bit beyond our ability. Let's review, and then we'll dive into the last chapter. Chapter 21 talked about heaven as the place Jesus prepared for us on the night he was betrayed. Jesus said, don't worry. I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. And then we find out that this father's house is quite a house. It's as big as a moon. It's a bejeweled city that comes out of heaven onto a new, brand new earth, a new earth. And this beautiful bejeweled city has walls 1,500 miles high and long, foundations with rare jewels, God is within her, this city. There's wiping away of our tears by his own hand. There's dazzle and excitement and community and safety and permanence and goodness. And we kind of get the feeling. The word is used paradise. Uh, The word comes from a garden paradise. And I think we can envision what that means. What does that exactly look like in heaven? 
well, picture Hawaii on steroids, and then maybe we start to get the look. And then the last thing we heard about heaven was that unbelievers and unrepented sinners are excluded, that they had a lifetime of grace and opportunity, and that Jesus loves them and paid for them as, as he did us, but they didn't uh, accept the son, son's payment. They're on self-pay. And for whatever reason, it says, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. And so that was the overall picture. Now we've got one chapter left, and actually only five verses that tell us more about heaven. The rest of the chapter is kind of concluding remarks and exhortations. So we're going to take a good look now. Uh, If you're taking notes, it kind of divides quite nicely. Verses 1 to 5 is the final description of heaven. Verses 6 to 7, the final testimony of the trustworthy nature of the word of God. Verses 8 and 9, the final slip-up of misdirected worship. John, for the second time, will try to worship the angel, and that is a no-no. Verses 10 through 15, the final warning to the unrepentant. And verses 16 through 21, that should read, final invitation to whoever is thirsty. So let's dig in. 1 through 5. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations." No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. They will be, there will be no more night. They will not need the light of the lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So let's pause there. The final description of heaven. There's some new ideas here, but really some also of reiteration. Um, And the biblical narrative is over, over and out. This is it. This is the last of the Bible story. Uh, What's left is really waiting to be fulfilled. And we'll get more information when we see him face to face. So uh, now that we've seen the walls, we get to, to look inside. The first thing that we see is this river called the river, which is important. It's the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne, gushing down alongside the main street. And you will notice that there's one throne, two names. God and the Lamb, who we know, of course, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, that would be Jesus. I and the Father are one. John chapter 10, verse 30. One throne, two names. The Lamb of God is God himself. Shares that throne with God the Father. And so we see, of course, this impressive, gushing river. And once again, the ideas sparkle. And in this place, I don't know, you can underline it, Revelation 21 and 22, of all the, and all through Revelation, any glimpse of heaven 
has a lot to do with sparkle and light and dazzle and refraction of the glory of God. It's a big deal in this place, the sea of glass before the throne that reflects and refracts light and it lights up like fire. That's just one thing. The city walls are said to be jasper, cut like a diamond, with gemstone foundations, all refracting the light from the glory of God. The walls are said, as I said, to be glass, but they're refracting from the golden streets the light off of the glory of God. And the water, too, flowing now from this throne is is saying it sparkles like crystal. It's just pure. It's, It's not muddied. It's not stagnant. It's unpolluted. And so it speaks of this pure environment, this sinless environment, and this nourishing of the human soul. So, of course, it makes sense that the water of life would flow from the God, from the throne of God, because he's the source of life. Where else does life come from? It's amazing that life itself proclaims that there's a God. It just screams there's a God because life cannot come from non-life. A spirit had to give birth to spirit, and we are spirit beings. And so uh, all things, as Pastor Jim eloquently taught on last Wednesday night, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 16, all things were created by Jesus and for Jesus. Right there. All things were created by Christ and for Christ. Therefore, of course, he's the source of everything. He holds everything together. And it makes sense that from him and his throne out comes this water of life. I've got a little picture just to keep your minds on track. They're just that beautiful thing. What is it about the sound of running water that we love? It's just knit into our hearts. As I really think that we just know. We know God created us in, a, in his image. We have an innate sense of what's waiting for us. And, and that sound puts us at rest for some reason. People go clamoring all around to either live by it or even get it on a recording and play it. I lived at Mission Springs in Scotts Valley for a little time while I went to Bethany Bible College. And it, there was a little creek right outside my bedroom right down a little bank, and you could hear the creek. You open the windows, you hear the creek. And everybody who ever heard that, just even walking down the hallway, you could hear it. People would say, man, how blessed are you to just hear that so relaxing. In the Old Testament, the river stood for richness and provision and peace and fertility and just plenty. And of course... John 4 is where it all comes together. Jesus was weary and tired after a journey, and he sat down at a well. You all know the story there in John 4, the Samaritan woman. And the Lord threw out a line to uh, this Samaritan woman to engage her. And he said, "Uh, woman, would you give me a drink? And she said, excuse me, but I see by how you're dressed, you're a Jew. Hello, I'm a Samaritan. We don't even talk to each other. How, how is it you can ask me for a drink? And he said, well, excuse me, if you knew who I was and who was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink. And you know what he would give you? He'd give you living water and you'd never be thirsty again. In fact, it would 
rise up within you and give you everlasting life. She was very intrigued. And this is the abundant life that Jesus spoke, that his mission statement was this, I've come to give you abundant life, that whoever drinks of me, just put it in terms we could understand, who embraces me and and obeys my teaching and trusts in me, it's like drinking this water that will make you alive. And then he goes on to say, there's this tree of life. And now we get in the theme of heaven. There's just irrepressible life. Uh, Just every inch of the eternal state, which we call heaven, there's just an explosion of verdant and lush life. And every nook and cranny, life is bursting forth from this place. So we get to go there. Now, this tree of life that's growing along Main Street, that's a, a, along the banks, there's the tree of life on both sides, probably goes out into all the, the world and that new earth. Uh, very interesting. It was in the garden, chapter 2 in Genesis It's not the the tree that got us into trouble. It's the tree that after we got into trouble, tasting the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that the tree of life was withdrawn and guarded and we were banned from that, lest in our fallen sinful condition we eat and live forever. How awful would have that been to have eternal life as a broken and depraved, rebellious Sinner, that would be awful. And so here, the tree, the curse is reversed, and the tree is made available. Now, this is not like a tree that we have seen here on earth. The the grammar seems to indicate the possibility of one tree producing 12 kinds of fruit, different fruit, 12 kinds from one tree. And interesting to me, you'll notice that every month the fruit changes. Ah, note, time in immortality is still counted. We're still counting. Now, do we have a sun, moon, and stars? We probably do. Do we need them? No, we don't. Because the glory of God lights the place. When he said, let there be light, in Genesis 1, it was before he made the sun, moon, and stars. So it wasn't that we really needed the sun, moon, and stars, but he threw them in for whatever reason. He may throw them in again. Is that the way we mark time? Nobody really knows, but we do know monthly. In eternity, you can say every month. So we mark time. Very interesting here. Immortals can still track time, and immortals can still eat. Now, this, of course, is our favorite subject to talk about. (laughs) Let me start by saying... I mean, raise your hand if you like to eat. (laughs) Now, i got good news for you. You can eat, but you don't have to eat. Jesus died. He rose again. He had his body. Uh, he, he, He was able to walk through the walls. And he walked through the walls in that upper room where the disciples are all freaked out. And they said, you're a ghost. And he said, man... I'm not a ghost. I rose from the dead, like I told you. Now listen, uh, does a ghost have flesh and bone? Not flesh and blood. The blood's gone. Digestion. We're spirit generated. We walk through walls, can appear, disappear, travel the speed of light. Who knows? But whatever it is, it's like Jesus. But what did he do to prove and to quell their fears? 
He said, I see what you're eating. Give me a piece of it. You want this broiled fish? Yeah, I'm not a ghost. I'm hungry. Give it to me. So he takes the fish, puts it in his mouth, chews it up, swallows, and then goes... Well, that last part isn't in the text. (laughs) That's what I picture. He's just saying, look, I swallowed it. I'm a human being glorified. I'm a glorified human being, and we can eat. He ate breakfast in John 21. Abraham in Genesis 18 ate with angels and the Lord. They all ate. The marriage supper of the Lamb, Revelation chapter 19. It's a marriage supper, and it's in heaven, Revelation 19. So we eat. Uh, We don't gain any weight because there's no calories. It's just a wonderful thing. Weight Watchers has seen its last days. Jenny Craig's looking for a job. They didn't like that first service either, but that's okay. You can't blame me for trying. All right. So this beautiful tree. And then something very strange. The, the leaves are for the healing of the nations. Well, why do you need healing if there's no sickness? The word in the Greek for the healing is therapia in the Greek, which can be better translated health-giving or serving or ministering to and so this is the paraphrase. Dr. Walverd first commented that by saying this, um, the tree promotes the enjoyment of life in New Jerusalem, or heaven, rather than correcting the ills that do not exist. In other words, within God's heavenly eternal state, there's this perpetual supply of wisdom goodness and wholeness that flows and grows, life never ending, the quality never dissipates there uh, because the source never dries up and there's just consumption and enjoyment uh, of incorruptible life without end. That's really the idea there. And when we get there, we'll we'll see the details. Uh, the, The easy thing is, he says, there's no more curse there. Sometimes I think the Holy Spirit uh, would rather tell us what's missing from heaven than what's there because it's clearer to us. We all know, unfortunately, what it means to be involved with anything cursed. You see, uh, we understand that. In Genesis 3, the Lord pronounced the couple guilty and said, uh, cursed is your body. There's going to be pain where there could have been joy. There's going to be death and disease and deformity and aging and ultimately death. Then he said death to relationships. There's going to be marital strife now and friction between the sexes. And there's going to be envy and coveting and hating and anger and killing and murder. He said there'll be a curse on the animal kingdom. Now the animals are going to devour one another. They're going to be afraid of you for good reason. (laughs) And then he said to your own soul, you die. There's an estrangement. Now you've passed on this genetic code to rebel, to resist truth, to want to do the wrong thing. The very thing that you don't want to do, you'll end up doing. And even in our careers, how we spend our lives, you know, making a living by the sweat of our brow, the necessity of 
hard and often futile kind of work. That all came from curse. So just go through it in your head. Is there an inch of your life that that isn't uh, corrupted by the curse? There's nothing about life where that curse didn't get in and make a good thing a bad thing. So as I was praying with Patty in the hospital, I'm walking out of uh, the third floor oncology unit. She was at the last room. And each room, I just looked right, looked left, right and left in every single room. Just a tragedy of sadness and cloud and despair and gaunt-looking people and concerned-looking loved ones. Never again. This occurs. No more hospitals, oncology, uh, wards, prisons, psychiatric units, gangs, corrupt politicians, liars, murderers, drug pushers, crazed world dictators who are threatening peace. Here's what I like. Dave Guzik put it this way. Very interesting. Our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state. Now listen. We wish Adam never would have done what he did. But we fail to realize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man, that we gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of, re- of redemption, not innocence. Now, check this out. I got a little chart here. And only the mastermind genius of God could do this. Look at how the curse is removed. Genesis 3, the ground is cursed. Revelation 22, no more curse. Daily sorrow in Genesis, no more tears. Revelation. First chapter, thorns and thistles. Last chapter, lush paradise. First chapters, death and decay. Then last chapter, eternal life. In the garden, temporary coverings. And then in the city, eternal holiness, permanent white linen, purity. We have in the beginning the devil, Satan opposing. And at the end, Satan is banished. In the beginning, we're kept from the tree of life. And at the end, we have access granted. In the garden, we're kicked out of paradise. And then we're invited back into the eternal city. The Redeemer is promised there in Genesis 3, and redemption is a done deal by the end of the chapter. Evil continually in the beginning, and then toward the end, nothing sinful enters. The cherubim are guarding the tree of life there, and then the angels are inviting at the gates of a city whose gates never close. The genius, the compassion, the loving kindness of a God who at his own expense for the sake of rebellious sinners, let everybody be born and let everybody choose. And wouldn't it be fair if he just would have struck down Adam and Eve and said, you know, everybody inside of you, in King James phrase, in your loins, died with you. But you know what? I'm going to just let it all play out. And I'm going to bring a gospel. And they're going to have a choice. They didn't have a choice, Adam and Eve, in you. But I'm going to bring them out of you. And I'm going to put the truth before them. And they're going to choose. And that's what he's done, or so it seems. Then the text goes on. Seeing his face. 
Now, you know, it's a little bit more profound than, than just seeing the, his outward face as, as wow as that's going to be. Wow, there's the face of God, because we don't even know what he looks like. But you're going to see his face, you're going to see the eye color, you're going to get what he looks like. But it's deeper. Charles Spurgeon said this, they shall see his face, by which I understand two things about that. First, that they shall literally and physically with their risen bodies actually look into the face of Jesus. And second, and this is what's really interesting, that spiritually their mental faculties shall be enlarged so that they shall be enabled to look into the very heart and soul and character of Christ so as to understand him, his work, his love, his character, his all in all as they never understood him before. I'm glad we're going to have new bodies that can handle all of this, because uh, that is why he, he, God is always telling people, listen, if you see my face, you will die. You're not equipped to come into my presence. He told Moses that and others, but now we're equipped. Uh, and so no more night, he says. Or I have a little picture of the light, you know, no more night. That's so awesome. And, and all that's associated with night, fear and ignorance and evil gone. We've got God sitting on a throne and emanating from him glory and light. Lots to do. It says there in verse three, we'll serve him. And like I said, well, what? If everything's perfect, how do you, what do you do? And, and J. Vernon McGee, love him. He said, who knows but what God will give to each believer to do? A world, a solar system, a galaxy to operate for him. Remember, God gave Adam the world and what might he have in store for us? Come on. God is industrious by nature. He's adventurous by heart. He's an explorer. He's a dreamer. He's an achiever. He's a planner. And he put some of that in us, flawed as we are. Wait until you see him in his true self and us as we were meant to be. You'll not be bored. There's more going on here than harps and white clouds. Amen. All right, we got to move on. The angel said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And here it is again. Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy in this book. So I've entitled this final testimony. Here's how I paraphrased it. You can depend on the words of this book with your very life. Now, John has seen some fantastic things in 21, 22 chapters. And, and maybe he's overwhelmed. And the Lord just says, listen, this is no dream. This is truth. This is going to happen. This is not watered down symbols, as it were. These are truths. These words are trustworthy and as reliable as God himself, and they'll come to pass. And, and here it continues, God is the voice behind the prophet speaking, and through them God has given his beloved people a heads up on what's soon to come to, come to pass. Uh, Jesus then is speaking in the middle here, and he says, behold. Now when the Lord says behold, it, it's translated look or 
and I don't mean to be disrespectful, but hey, you, it's an attention getter. So he says, the Lord says, hey, listen to me. I'm coming suddenly, and when it happens, it'll be speedily and without delay. That word, I come soon, can be translated speedily or suddenly as a surprise. And it also means that once it starts, it's without delay. It's just boom. That's what he's saying. Blessed are you who take all of this to heart. And so he says, John, I know you've seen a lot of things, but you know what? Don't just say, hey, it's all symbolic. So take away any meaning because, oh, hey, it's just a symbolic book. Excuse me, but you know, when the symbols are used, they're often defined. Then what do you say? The lampstands are churches. The stars you saw, they're angels. The seven heads on that beast stand for seven hills. The ten horns stand for ten leaders. You saw a red dragon, John. Let me tell you who that is. It's the devil. You see, uh, when you define the symbols, you no longer have an entirely symbolic book. You have teaching, instruction, exhortation. There's a lot of that in the book. So it is a real misnomer and misstep to take the book as a whole and say it's all symbolic. It is a book of truth that uses symbols to help us understand. And what it doesn't define itself, you have the Old Testament defines the other half of them. There's some mystery, yes, but there's truth. And that's why he says, listen, these words are truth. It's just not some watered-down symbolic thing that nobody can understand. It's called revelation. The word means unveiling. If we couldn't grasp it, if we couldn't understand it, we couldn't take it to heart, then the whole premise of the book to take to heart and to understand doesn't come through. You see? So he says, right, John. It's overwhelming. These words are true. These words are true. So he says, these words are true. They come from God. And the one who is revealing is coming. Oh, happy. How happy you'll be if you didn't ignore this book, excuse it away, or water it all down. So yes, it's overwhelming. So we go on. So overwhelming that John makes mistake number two and falls down to worship this glorious being before him. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I saw and heard them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said to me, do not do it. I'm a fellow servant with you and with your brothers and the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. Worship God. So we have the final slip up. It happened once in Revelation 19. None of us can blame John. Every time you see an angel in the scriptures, people fall over and want to die. So it must be quite a glorious uh, scene. Now, here John has heard Jesus' voice in the midst of what the angel's showing. That probably makes him want to bow down even more. And the angel says, man, I'm like you. I'm a created being. We're all serving God. Worship him. And here's what I really like about this insight. That we're only supposed to worship God. Now, when I deal with groups that deny Jesus' deity, that deny that Jesus is God, and they ride bikes and they knock at your door, both groups, I use this reasoning. Follow me, it works wonders. So I say to them, 
We only worship God. True? True. Because anytime we misdirect our worship, there's a correction, right? Right. You remember when Jesus and Satan went at it, and Satan said, hey, if you bow down and worship me, uh, I'll give you all of this. But the Lord responded with Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13, which says, worship the Lord God only, and him only shall you serve. Right? And they say, right. Because it's written, we only worship God. Correct? Correct. And so then, when Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 are preaching the gospel, they heal a lame person, and the pagan people around, just uh, they're blown away by it, so they bring a bull to sacrifice to them, and they call them Zeus and Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas tear their clothes and say, oh, don't do it. We're just guys like you. Worship God. So see, when we worship in the wrong way, the scripture is quick to say, we only worship God. Right? Right. Oh, I love it. And then I say, well, in John 19 and in John 21, there's this big ginormous angel. And poor John, he falls at the feet And he starts to worship, and the angel goes, are you kidding me? Get up. What are you doing? I'm a fellow servant. I'm like you. Worship God, because we only worship God, because it's written, we only worship God, and when we don't worship God, it's corrected with a rebuke. Right? And they say, right. And then I close him for the kill. (laughs) The wise men came to work. Worship, say it. You can say it. Go ahead. The wise men came to worship. Mary didn't throw a fit. Mary didn't say, how dare you? No, it was okay. You know why? Because of the, of the son, the Bible says, let all God's creation and angels worship him. In John chapter 9, Jesus heals a man born blind, and he falls down, and the Bible's word is, and he worships Jesus, right there. And does Jesus correct him? I say to them, oh, no, he doesn't. He receives it. Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and worships him. And and what does Jesus do? He pronounces a blessing. Blessed are you. And who is it, my dear friends, who sits on the throne in heaven in chapters 5 and 6, and all of creation as far as the eye can see, people, innumerable hosts of angels and redeemed mankind, all singing praises to somebody on the throne called a lamb. Who could that be? Well, who's the lamb? The lamb is Jesus. Who are we worshiping? We only worship God. Therefore, if Deuteronomy 6.13 is true, that we are written and commanded to worship the Lord and him only shall we serve. And we are all commanded in heaven to bow at the feet of Jesus and cast our crowns before him and worship and praise the Lamb of God. Therefore, my friend, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is equal to God in every way. Amen? Amen. Amen. (laughs) It works. Just take your time with them. Just a little at a time. And make sure you get the yes part. Along the way, all right? All right, should we move on now? Final warnings. Then he told me, verse 10, 
Don't seal up the words of the prophecy of the book because the time is near. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile, the word there in the Greek is filthy, morally filthy. Let him who is morally filthy continue to be morally filthy. Let him who does right continue to do right. And him who is holy continue to be holy. Behold, here it is again. I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, and the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may go through the gates into the city. So there's a condition given. You need to have washed your robes. Verse 15, outside are the dogs, those who practice magic arts, sexually immoral, the murderers, idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. So unlike Daniel of old, who was told to seal up some of the prophecy, and the apostle Paul who was told, hey, you can't share this, the angel tells John, hey, this is for the edification of the church. It's the unveiling. Disclose it fully. Now, notice this really interesting verse. The truth, once it's unveiled, polarizes. What I mean by this is uh, this truth of 21 chapters uh, will do one of two things. These words will win some and they will harden others. Now, look at that verse. Let him who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let him who is vile continue to be vile. Let him who does right continue to do right. Let him who is holy continue to be holy. Now, here's how I'm going to paraphrase that. You've got an angel who's saying, we've shown you a lot of things in 21 chapters. You've seen the risen Lord in all his glory in chapter 1. You've seen the churches in 2 and 3. And then in 4 and 5, you've seen the throne room of God, the cherubim, the seraphim, the 24 elders. You've heard the songs of heaven. In 6 through 19, you saw 21 cataclysmic judgments come down and make the earth uninhabitable. You saw all of that, and you see now the heavenly city coming down from heaven as a bejeweled bride dressed for her husband. In light of everything you've seen, then he says... You know what? In light of this truth, if you're still bent on doing evil and loving the big pen, so be it. Go right ahead. And those of you who are doing the right thing, keep it up. Those who are living dedicated to the Lord, stay that way. Here's what I hear him saying. Heaven or hell, life or death, lake of fire, or the bejeweled city in paradise. Here's the truth. Make your choice. Do your thing. Stay your course, up or down. God's plan goes forward either way, my friend, and so be it. Now, verses 12 through 15, one last ditch effort with those on a southbound train. Uh, You know, we get to choose paradise or perdition. Perdition's an old school word, which means eternal condemnation. Now, for those on the road to perdition, he says, hey, there's a way out. Wash your robes, man. All you got to do is wash those robes. Now, right before he talks about this in a harsh way, 
He makes a statement about himself, and he does this throughout Revelation. It's as if the Lord says, hey, here's who I am, and I have the right to make the following statement that many will find objectionable. But just let me preface it by telling you who I am before you hear it and go, I don't think so. Well, just let me tell you. So he'll say, I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end, I'm the Alpha and Omega, first and last Greek letter. So it's as if he's saying, I'm the A, I'm the Z, and everything in between. I'm God Almighty, and I approve this ad. (laughs) And then he's going to say it. Well, that's what he said. Just so you know, I'm God Almighty. I started everything. I'm going to end everything. And I'm in the middle holding everything together. Therefore, I'm I'm about to say something that's going to make you a little uncomfortable. But just so you know who it is who's speaking, I can say these things. And so there he does. And let me paraphrase it for you. We're almost done. Oh, happy. Oh, how happy the person who's wearing clean clothes on that day, smelling fresh. Blessed is the person who got cleaned up and bathed, walking right on through those gates and heir to everything inside, partaking of the tree of life. Excluded are those who stayed filthy, unwashed, soiled. They're not coming in. They are like those dirty, nasty street dogs that run wild and scavenge through garbage all over town. These are the ones who like to go to fortune tellers and psychics. They like to get high. They have sex outside of marriage. They worship and love money and materialism and pleasure more than God. And they're very comfortable with lies and falsehood. The most wonderful irony in all of the chapter is that we who are saved, who are going through the gates, come out of that list. And to this day, until we see Christ and are perfected in our bodies, struggle and commit these very sins. But there's one difference between us and those who are excluded. We got washed. We got washed. We didn't wash ourselves. We've been washed. First Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11, a very similar passage. Paul the Apostle says, look, Corinthians, let me give you a list of lifestyles that th- there's no way if you're living that lifestyle that you're going to go to heaven. And he names the list. It's very similar. And then here's what he says. He says, but you, no, he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of our Lord God and by the Spirit. Now, that's all that's different, is that when a person who's living a sinful life, whether it's outwardly manifested or not, when we come to the Lord, the Holy Spirit comes in and there's cleansing. The application of Jesus' blood on the cross cleanses us, and that's what he means by washed robes, not that I clean up my life, but that I trust God and his sacrifice to come and cleanse me deep within by his blood. I love the verse, but if we're living in the light, God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The only way we wash our robes is to have them washed. 
by believing in Jesus. And he says it's so free and so easy. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Let's finish up when we're done with the book of Revelation. I, Jesus, verse 14 or 16. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root, which means I'm the source or the origin, and the offspring or descendant of David. So I created David, and I'm related to David. And the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, come. Let him come. And whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, If anyone adds anything to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes words away from the book of this prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. Now, the final warning on missing out, we've already talked about the final invitation now to paradise. Now, I still think Jesus has in mind the sad state of those who don't make it. So he describes himself in a way that kind of brings the level of intimidation down. So, so he says, as almost to encourage those he just listed, right? He says, you know, he identifies himself as God. He says, I'm the origin I created, David, right? And I'm the bright morning star, which means it's the first star that you see. It's actually Venus, but it was in the ancient times known as the star that welcomed the new day. And so Jesus is saying, this whole new world, this paradise, this heaven, I'm there. I've made it. I'm there to welcome you to a new, brand new morning, the morning of eternity. And so he says, yes, I am God, but I'm also related to you all. I'm fully God, but I am fully a man. I was born on one of your women. I came out of birth canal, and I sit on the throne as somebody who walked this earth living, breathing, Sweating and bleeding, who worked a job. That's our God. And he says, I'm related to David. So you in that big nasty group, you realize who David is? He's like my great grandfather. And you know, he committed two big sins in that group. Sexual immorality and murder. And he's related to me. Come on. Come and drink. It's okay. Somebody who's related to me by blood. Yes, I'm God. Yes, I'm man. I am the God man. But I connected with you all. I was sinless, but I became your sin. And if, if David, the great saint, and who was also a great sinner, can be related to me, man, you're welcome at my table. That's the point. There. And how did David get into the kingdom? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. 
Psalm 51, after the sexual immorality. Blessed is he who washes his robe, for he will enter through the gates and eat of the tree of life freely. Why? What did he do? He turned from a sin, but he was washed. And as far as we know, he didn't commit that sin again. We turn, we're transformed. If David can come clean, so can you. Thirsty, come and drink freely. And then finally, so interesting, this, by the way, don't even think about having a Mr. Young preacher boy or old preacher boy have some kind of revelation and kind of fit it in between 21 and 22. He said, I, I'm not really uh, down with that. This is my revelations. Keep you and your ideas out of here. Or you're going to be in trouble. And then he says, and for you young hipsters who want to cut and paste around the parts that you don't like that are politically incorrect and make your congregation uncomfortable. He says, you know what? You want to take away from my word? Do you want me to take away your part in that beautiful city? Don't mess with me. What about the parts of burning sulfur? And day and night forever they shall be tormented. Day and night forever and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. And whoever's name was not found in the Lamb's Book of Life was thrown into the fiery lake of fire that burns without end forever and ever. Oh, that's very uncomfortable. We're just going to say, what did he really mean by that? (laughs) Whatever he really meant by it, it's pretty serious. (laughs) In Matthew 13... Jesus tells a parable about just the same kind of thing, eternal loss. And it's a parable. So he talks about it in terms of weeds and seed and farmer and having to pluck up the weeds and then pile them in a pile and burn them. Then afterwards, the disciples come in and catch this, okay? Catch this. The disciples come in and say, explain the meaning of that parable. So he says, fine, I'm glad you asked. I'm the farmer, the seed, I sow the seed, the seed, the wheat that comes up are my people, the weeds that's, that come up, the bad seed is sown by the devil, the bad seed are people who follow him, never come to me, and at the end of the age, the harvesters are angels, and the angels will come and collect, and they'll take the wheat into the barn that is my people, into safety, into the kingdom, and the weeds They shall be burned and tossed in the lake of fire. Now, my friend, you can no longer say, well, what does that mean? He already defined it. It was in a parable. They asked, please tell us what this means. And he told them, A equals this, B equals that, C equals that. You're done. Now you've got the answer. And it goes with exactly what 21 and 22 says. Uncomfortable, unpleasant, unpopular. Check, check, check. True. That's what's here. But he closes with what? And here's what he models for us the whole purpose of Revelation. Uh, An altar call. 
the truths revealed to us in 22 chapters of Revelation about the things to come simply are to bring a compassion in our hearts to endure for him faithfully. That's the first thing. And the second thing is to have a compassion for the lost to join him because everybody's joining him. The spirit's saying, come. The baby is saying, come. (laughs) The bride is saying, come. Uh, Everybody, and then it says, let him who hears say, come. In other words, those who just get saved, the the first thing they want to do is say, hey, I don't want anybody to miss this. So come on. Hey, let me tell you about Jesus. So that is the real focus of the, the, the motto the reflection, the purpose for all of those words and all of those imageries is to have a compassion in the lo- for the lost so that you don't walk away and go, oh, it's all symbols, everybody makes it. Uh, yeah. No, take it to heart. Now be a different person with who you speak with this afternoon and tomorrow and on Facebook. That person's in danger of missing that city. That's what he's saying. He's, Jesus closes with an altar call. Come, come, please come. Taste freely. Don't perish. There's water. It's free. It's right here. Come, come, come. The Spirit says come. I say come. My bride says come. How can you lose when you got everybody rooting for you? The only thing now to do is to come. It's two-sided coin. We say, come, Lord Jesus, and come to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. I forgot about communion. (laughs) Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your love. We thank you for a wonderful study through 22 beautiful chapters. It's such a privilege to be under your word, to do our best to take it to heart, to hear it, to study it, to live it. Thank you for the hope of eternal life, the assurance. In Jesus' name, amen.